So we're tonight celebrating, uh, it's a little bit of a different talk in class. This is uh, called Visak, which is the most important Buddhist holiday of the year. And it's a celebration of the Buddha's birth and his enlightenment and his death. And you might wonder how a, uh, it could be all three, is the question. And it's, uh, you know, because they feel like they have different flavors, but actually you'll find as we explore tonight in the mythology that each one uh, tunes us in and expresses qualities of awakening. So we're going to just explore it and, and to say that you don't have to be a Buddhist to find that as you reflect on this myth of awakening, let it be your own exploration of how your life's journey is unfolding. Because the power of any real myth is that it's archetypal. And I find this, uh, I love reflecting on the pieces of this story of the Buddha's awakening because it really is a, is a live one. It's very contemporary. So that's the invitation. I'd like to read to you a poem by the poet Kaveri. She writes, I believe I am destined for great things, a gentle breeze guiding me to places only a compassionate warrior would dare travel. My breath is my light as I enter the dark cave of fear. I sit on the cold floor, my heart on fire, warming this cave, warming the world with fierce tenderness with the possibility that the hero's journey starts within, the invitation open to all. With the possibility that the hero's journey starts within, the invitation open to all. Thank you, Kaviri. So that feels important to me because one of our greatest illusions is that this journey and this path of awakening and enlightenment is just the property or the possibility for a rare few. And it's incredibly powerful to begin to open our minds to the possibility that this very heart-mind being right here can wake up and touch freedom. That every one of us has this capacity to realize what's called Buddha nature, or true nature. So that's the the value of reflecting on this myth, is to really sense in our own beings this possibility. So we'll start with the Buddha's birth, and I'll share a few pieces of it. Uh, it's filled with symbolism. It's, it's um, the custom of the day when the Buddha was born, was that the mother would go to her parents' house to give birth. And the Buddha's mother, Mahamaya, was on her way there, but she got really drawn into this beautiful flowered forest. And she uh, found an Ashoka tree, and she was holding on to it when labor came on, and she gave birth under this tree. And I'm going to come back to trees a lot in this, you know, I'm going to talk about this more. But, so the birth was in this flowering forest, and there's a lot of symbolism. First, when the Buddha was born, immediately he took seven steps in each direction, and that's representing the lotus waking up. And you might wonder, a little newborn infant taking steps, but that's the myth, you know. So, flowers play a conspicuous role. We'll see flowers again and again in many Buddhist and other myths, signaling the capacity for awakening and for freedom. And then there's a sense of really being part of the earth. It's the the innocence of coming from the earth and from the stars, that there's this freshness, that we're all born with this natural nobility. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, O nobly born, O you of glorious origins, remember your true nature, the radiant nature of your own heart and mind shining deathless. So right from the birth, there's a sense of this nobility of being, this naturalness that gives form. And 
we can sense it any time we watch a birth or see a newborn, that innocence and that potential. I've only been to a few births, but each one I found myself crying at. And, and I, when I started investigating, well, how come I'm crying? It was because just like being with a death, it's that mystery that of sensing spirit taking form and you're right so close into it. So we celebrate the birth of the Buddha. It's this birth of consciousness and this unlimited potential that if you saw yourself as an infant, you'd see that in yourself. So the Buddha-to-be was named Siddhartha, which means one who has brought about all good. His last name, Gotama, is a family name. And a few days after his birth, a holy man came and visited with his father, the king, and said, your son is destined to be a great, great man. It might be that he's a ruler of men, a king, and it might be that he's a holy man. And his father, the king, said, here's what it's going to be. He's going to be a king. Later, old age, fine, a holy man. But now, you know, younger, a king. So that was his plan. And what he did to ensure that plan was he had Siddhartha stay on the premises in what are sometimes described as pleasure palaces where um, every bit of, every one of his needs were met and he you know, lived with beautiful surroundings and gardens and dancing women and eventually you know, ha- had a beautiful wife and a son. So the pre- pleasure palaces are kind of archetypal and we're going to go back and forth between the story and the archetypes in our life. The pleasure palaces are our ego that this, this container that we uh, live within to try to navigate. And in a way, they're in a very simple way, as we find in Buddhist psychology, we're going for pleasure and we're trying to avoid pain. And so this ego structure is just navigating to make sure, you know, we get what we want and we avoid what we don't want. And there's really a sense of trying to not face mortality, be very protected from that. So how we have many ways of doing that. And one of them is that we keep ourselves very distracted. You know, we always feel we're on our way to something and we always have the next thing we think we have to do. It's like some of you might remember the, one of my favorite cartoons of this man and woman sitting in a living room and he's saying, you know, if I ever become a vegetable, just pull the plug, you know. At which point she walks over to the TV set and she pulls the plug, you know. <laughs> so, so we're plugged in, and, which means we're preoccupied in our pleasure palace, in our ego. And it doesn't mean the ego is not always pleasure. Of course, we know that. But we are ongoingly trying to maneuver to have less pain and to have more pleasure. And of course, we have a billion-dollar advertisement industry and a culture that completely supports it. It's like you don't see on ads people coming into silence. You don't see on ads that there's a sense of you know poetry or just quiet walking. Everything costs money, keeps you busy and keeps you distracted. So it's not about what's free and simple. So we stay hooked in this in this palace, in this, ego, in this pleasure palace or ego state. Mary Tyler Moore says, three things help me get through life successfully. An understanding husband, an extremely good analyst, and millions and millions and millions of dollars, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, St. Augustine wrote, Dear Lord, please give me chastity and continence, but not yet, you know? <laughs> so you get the idea that we get hitched. Our lives get hitched to trying to have certain pleasures and avoid pain. And our pleasures aren't always the obvious sense pleasures. For many of us, the pleasures are checking things off a list, feeling like we've accomplished a certain thing. You know, it's, it's a little more complex. So what happened to Siddhartha was that he was in the, this ego, our pleasure palace, until the inevitability of reality kind of cracked things open. And how it happened in the myth was that his charioteer 
Chana took him out on some excursions. Now, he wasn't supposed to leave, but he did. He can, just the way we kind of sometimes break out a little. And on these excursions, he met what were called the four holy messengers. And the first one was a sick man, and then it was an old man, and then a corpse. And then he met the last one, which was, a, was an ascetic, a holy man. And the meaning of this is that he faced the inevitability of getting old, getting sick, and dying. I might have said the sequence wrong. The first one was an old man. But he faced it, and it cracked open his world. It was like, as soon as he realized this life is impermanent, there's nothing that I can hold on to. Everything I'm chasing after to give me pleasure is absolutely going to go away. It's like rope burn. If you try to hold on, you get rope burn. How in a changing and permanent world where I know what's inevitable can I find peace and freedom? And so that became his compelling inquiry. Now, for each of us, each of us, we wouldn't be here if there hadn't been some kind of crack or opening in our ego structure. I sometimes describe it as a spacesuit we're wearing and something cracks through and we get it that we cannot control things. And sometimes it comes, we have a big shock in our lives and for many of us it's more gradual, smaller things happen but it becomes clear it's out of our hands. You know, we can control the small things but we can't control the fact that these bodies are aging and get sick and that other people behave in ways that we don't like and they get sick and we lose everything that we love. So that starts dawning on us. And you might sense in your own life, have there been certain experiences where you started loosening the grip, where your, you know, a surety in the ego structure started becoming wobbly because you really got it, it's out of my hands. There's a saying that the truth will set you free, but before it does, it'll make you angry, okay? And, and, I, and I find that's really accurate, that we start getting this cracked open feeling, like things go wrong, like our own, our own body will get sick or somebody, or we'll, you know, somebody will betray our trust and we'll realize that what we really wanted we might not get. And before we open to, oh, it's impermanence, let me turn towards uh, you know, genuine freedom, we take a more subtle form of false refuge, which is we blame not so subtle actually. We blame others, we blame ourselves. And there's another reaction we have when we encounter truth. It not only makes us angry, it gets us into striving mode. It gets us to, um, you know, we sense that things are shaky and we say, okay, if this is the way it is, I'm going to make myself better. And that's, and so Siddhartha, when he left home, because after he met the heavenly messengers, he left the palaces, he left his wife, and he left his son. And he went out and he committed himself to the holy life. He committed himself to finding a way to discover freedom in the midst of this changing world. So what happened was that he lived through six years of austerities, where he did every extreme yogic thing, every way of starving his body, of, of you know, really uh, denying himself what he could to try to control and subdue his senses. He didn't want to be, in, you know, chasing after pleasure anymore. So he tried really hard. Now, this was not his wisest approach to freedom, as we'll find out, but that was the first thing that happened was he started to wake up, but then he started striving. And we do that too. I can say for myself that when I first realized, oh, it's possible to open out of this trance and to live in a, in a much more free and open place, I, I moved into an ashram and I immediately took my type A striving from my earlier life and became, as I've told many of you, a type A yogi. You know, I just was striving there. A lot of people do that. Meditation becomes this thing where we're trying to get somewhere. 
and we're evaluating our progress and we're seeing all how spiritual a person am I and, and evaluating ourselves that way some of you might remember the Zen student that goes to the monastery and he's really eager for enlightenment he says how long will it take me to get enlightened the abbot says ten years and he goes what if I try really really hard <laughs> twenty years <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute you just said ten years for you, 30 years, you know. <laughs> so you get the idea. So we strive, and as Lily Tomlin says, the trouble is with being in the rat race, whatever kind of striving, is that even if you win, you're still a rat, you know. So we strive, and, and we take on improvement projects. And you might just check out in your own life how, if that's true, that you sense, okay, there's another level of freedom possible and then you might decide to go to grad school or get a degree in massage or you know in some way you know work harder to to buff yourself up and one of the stories I've always liked on this uh, this guy is when when Thompson hit 70 he decided to change his lifestyle to enhance his well-being and improve himself so he went on a, a diet and he jogged and he swam and he took sun bass. In just three months he had lost 30 pounds, reduced his waist by six inches. He was felt, he was tan, he learned some foreign languages, he took a few courses, really going on it. And uh, he decided to top it off with a, with a haircut. Afterward, while stepping out of the barber shop, he was hit by a bus. As he lay dying, he cried out, God, how could you do this to me? And a voice from the heavens responded, to tell you the truth, Thompson, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> okay, that's enough of my stories. <laughs> but you get the point that we go on this good personhood project, and um, you know, it's like Sis- Sisyphus pushing the boulder up. You know, it's like we're still striving. We're still a, we still are caught in the sense of a self that's not okay as long as we're striving. So just to invite you just to take a moment and just sense for yourself in your life where you feel that you are caught in that kind of striving, where it's not just, yes, I want to serve others, or yes, I want to learn more, but that your approach is to try hard with tension, whether it's you're serving your family at work, you just to begin to sense the difference between a self-improvement project and when you're really aligning yourself in a way that can allow you to wake up. How much striving? And as you reflect, you might sense when you're in striving mode, what happens to your body? into your heart. In our archetypal story of, the, of Siddhartha, here he was, 35 years old, and he had had a wake-up, but he was striving, and he had, had do, been doing it for six years, and at the end of the six years he was starving and near death from treating his body so harshly. So something in his mind said, there must be another way. Okay? And that happens to us too. It might be that, you know, we get sick or it might be that we feel that we've alienated somebody and we've lost a sense of intimacy, that we've been just working so hard that what really mattered fell by the wayside. But something in us goes, okay, it was well-intentioned, but there must be another way. And for the Buddha, After that went through his mind, he had a memory. And in that memory, he was, his uh, father, the king, he had gone uh, out into the fields on the, uh, to do the spring plowing with with his father. And he had been kind of off on the side under this rose apple tree while others were working. And he began to relax deeply. 
And he, in that moment of relaxing under the rose apple tree, he started reflecting on all, on the earth and on the insects that were killed in the plowed fields and feeling this kind of compassion for the life forms that had been hurt and also a sense of the beauty of the blue sky and the clouds and the the wafting of fragrance. In that presence, his heart was including just the joys and the sorrows, the beauty, the sadness. And as his heart really opened in that way, he relaxed back into a quality of presence that's sometimes described as the first jhana of absorption, which is tranquility, which is a sense of rapture, deep, deep peace. He wasn't at war with himself. There was no striving at all. And what he realized, and this is what's so important, was that getting to freedom is possible even for a young child, because he was a young child. When there's simply this kind of presence and relaxation, it does not take striving. There can be an intention. In fact, for most of us, there needs to be some intention. But it's profound relaxation. So this realization is something that many of us have. You might have had a glimmer or perhaps a deep wake-up on this where something in you got it that you could be striving for the rest of your life and it's not going to work. It's not going to bring intimacy. It's not going to bring you to any sense of true realization. Certainly not to touching peace, right? And so there's this this wake-up, this realization that senses, oh, it's about relaxing back, not about tensing and going after things. Sometimes it comes in the form of the sense that everything that we're longing for, and if you sense what you're longing for, maybe it's true peace of mind, or maybe it's to love without holding back, to really touch that kind of timeless, tender love. Maybe it's full presence. Everything you're longing for is already here. Maybe you've had a glimmer of that, that what you really long for is already here. It's not in the next moment. It can never be in the next moment or down the road. And it can't be somewhere else. It's already here. And if you get that glimmer, it totally shifts how you approach spiritual practice. There's not a striving, because striving is like bicycling away from the present moment. Does that make sense? So that was the Buddha's realization. He, you know, he had that voice saying, there must be another way, and he remembered, ah, it's about wakeful presence, but relaxed. So back to his story. He stopped depriving himself. He took in nourishment. He had, in the story, as the story goes, and it's, I think this is an interesting piece, he had collapsed from weakness, and he was found unconscious by a a young girl, Sujata, from a nearby village. And uh, she brought rice milk and cakes and lotus seeds and and she had been bringing them to offer them to the forest gods, but she saw this young monk unconscious, so she went over to him and, you know, placed the bowl of milk to his lips and put some drops in and he started awakening. The drops moistened his tongue and mouth and and he drank and he started getting nourishment and then each day she'd come back until he gained the strength he needed. I love that story because he could not have then gone on, and he's about to go on to the Bodhi tree, unless he had taken in nourishment. And this is a key archetypal kind of juncture in each of our lives when we realize it's not about I'm always supposed to be giving out and the only way to really be a good person is if I'm helping others there's also a profound freedom and waking up that happens when we let love in. Can you let love in? Can you let another person's love touch you and nourish you? It's like breathing in. It's as important as breathing out. 
It's the turning point that I've seen in working with people in a more therapeutic context. And it's also an essential element of spiritual freedom. Breathing in, taking in love. And, the, and Siddhartha had to do that. You know, he took in from a young girl that rice milk. So he took in the nourishment and then he found his way to the Bodhi tree. And uh, that's now Bodhgaya. And it was late spring and he resolved to become still, to stop doing, and to open to the mystery under the Bodhi tree. Now, now I'd like to say a word about trees because uh, it's a wonderful part of the story that there was, that Buddha was born under a tree, he was enlightened under a tree, and as we'll talk about, he died under a tree. And he had that awakening as a young boy under a tree. And this is symbolic of what's called the world tree, which stands at the center of the cosmos. And um, it's a common feature in many myths of salvation and freedom, that this world tree is this place where the divine energies uh, pour into the world, okay, where the absolute awareness pours into the world and, and it meets the human and it's this unmovable spot where our humanity experiences spirit. And it's said that the Garden of Eden and the cross of the, that, according to Christian le- legend, the cross of Jesus, same spot, okay? And so this immovable spot under the tree is the place, the still point that we come to. And you're at it in any moment that you remember, that you say, oh, here. So each of us right now is as much under the Bodhi tree as anyone ever in history, if we just remember to come back, you know, just come back here. Because the tree, that, that tree of salvation, is really everywhere in the universe. It's a place of total balance. It's a place where we can see reality as it is and we can see who we are. Stillness. So just, just to say that the elements of the journey thus far, of the hero's journey, is that there's disillusionment, disillusionment, that we're kind of in some sort of a trance, we all are, the culture makes it so, it's part of our brain structure to forget, you know, to go into duality and to identify as a separate self, okay, so there's disillusionment, something kind of shakes us awake, and then there's some part of us that intends to, oh, okay, let me, let me wake up out of this trance because the whole trajectory is moving from being inside a trance of small, separate, deficient self into realizing the wholeness of who we are. So disillusionment, okay, let me wake up. And then we kind of have to find our way to doing it tenderly. We have to let love in. We have to be kind to ourselves, because if there's not kindness it'll move into aversion and judgment and we'll still be in that trance. It'll just be another form of it. So there's kindness and yet there's resolve. On the hero's journey, this invitation that's here tonight and in every moment, there's a sense of resolve and that resolve can wake up in you at any moment. I mean, you can leave here tonight with more of you consciously aware that freedom matters and that you really want to come to that still point. You want to sit under the Bodhi tree. So these are the steps that we have that disillusionment, we feel that kindness but that resolve and then we pause, we just pause. And so this is what the the Buddha did and you might just close your eyes for a moment and we'll just sense how this archetypal myth really is right here. So I'll describe a little bit of the the process that Siddhartha went went through and you can just sense it for yourself because this is not a, a myth that has any value unless you can sense the possibility that you are an awakening being under the Bodhi tree in this moment at the center of the universe, not striving, that this is a pause. So what the Buddha saw 
described that through the four watches of the night he saw the radical nature of impermanence which means that right now just a sense as you bring your attention into your body that everything's moving that there's pulsing and vibrating and tingling sounds are continually changing from this micro sense right within our own bodies every speck of dust to the wheeling galaxies everything's moving there's a sense that this whole universe that we know is destined to be born and to die over and over in many ways the Diamond Sutra thus shall we think of this fleeting world a star at dawn a bubble in the stream a flash of lightning in a summer cloud an echo a rainbow a dream so the Buddha saw this this changing world and and saw the first noble truth that this changing flows experiences pleasure and pain and there's dissatisfaction because it all just moves and changes and there's a sense that something's missing and something's wrong often and that it's just this is our conditioning and then when we react when we try to hold on when we try to control we suffer he saw that and he saw that when instead we pause when we pause and notice what's here this is mindful awareness and you can experience it right this moment what is happening in this moment and can I let this be in the moments of true recognizing and letting be we re-arrive in the freedom of presence Ajahn Chah put it this way he said if you let go a little you'll find a little peace if you let go a lot you'll find a lot of peace if you let go absolutely you'll find absolute peace and tranquility So the Buddha discovered that this quality of presence brings a tremendous amount of awakeness and freedom. And if you'd like to open your eyes, we'll just take the next step of the myth. He also discovered that the challenges of sustaining this presence are really great. And the classic Uh, encounter which many of you have heard is that he was challenged by Mara which is all the shadow forces all the parts of our psyche that don't want to be present that are afraid that believe in this kind of ego self that we have to grasp after things to be happy that we have to push away things to be safe so he got challenged by Mara and the way Mara came in the myth he had a massive army he had an elephant 150 leagues high he was riding this elephant and he had sprouted 1,000 arms each with deadly weapons so this is Mara you know he's no small opponent and that's the way he appeared in the myth as an opponent this inner shadow side and and then what the Buddha did was with each of the slings and arrows and weapons that came at him he met it with the same presence we're talking about what is happening can I be with with this compassion and each weapon turned into a flower petal fell to the Buddha's feet until there was at dawn approached a mound of petals at the Buddha's feet so this is part of the myth but that wasn't the end the Buddha is even getting more and more awake because not only has he paused and gotten very present but all the forces of his own psyche and ego were coming at him and he kept on being present with compassion, with tenderness yes, this too, this too then Mara issued his greatest challenge and this is the challenge is basically who do you think you are? who do you think you are to really hold the seat of a holy man 
So he challenged him. He challenged him in, this is the challenge really of doubt. This is, this is the hard challenge. And so each one of us knows that one. It's like we can wake up, we can start getting our lives together, things can get aligned, but something will happen where we'll start thinking, something's wrong with me, I'm doing it wrong, I can't trust myself. And you might sense where that's so for you, where the voice of Mara comes on and has you in some way question your goodness, your purity, your okayness. Maybe it's much more severe. Maybe the voice just gets you feeling you're totally flawed. Okay? So this is what happened with the Buddha, that this Mara challenged him in this way. And Mara had, you know, he said, who can bear witness to your, you know, how can you prove that you, that you deserve the mantle of a Buddha? And Mara had one of his soldiers, you know, bear witness to his right to the seat, you know. And he said, who do you have? And instead of meeting Mara's machismo and kind, the Buddha reached out his right hand and touched Mother Earth. And this is now a favorite icon in in Buddhist cultures, touching the earth. And he acknowledged, really, that we feel separate and we need to reach out. We need to reach out and call on our belonging. That no matter how strong our mindfulness is, there's this very beautiful sense that part of the path is to very consciously reach towards sensing our belonging to this whole web of life, Sensing our belonging to loving presence, to truth. The Buddha touched the earth. And when he did, the clouds darkened and there was thunder and there was all sorts of high drama and and Mara totally backed off. Mara vanished. And it was at that moment, after touching the earth and calling on, you know, really the sacred feminine to sense his belonging, that the Buddha was totally free two wings, full mindfulness and the wing of love, of really feeling belonging to the whole. So this is how the Buddha took refuge. He took refuge in loving presence. And in, in a deep way, he was taking refuge in his own Buddha nature. But in the moment that he was touching the earth, for that moment he was feeling separate and reaching out to discover, oh, I'm taking refuge in what I am. Do you understand that? It seems outside us, this love. And by reaching towards it with purity and sincerity, we discover it's our very nature. House builder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All thy rafters are broken, thy ridgepole is shattered. The mind attains the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So this is the classic verse. House builder meaning this ego, this palace, we no longer have to identify with the coverings, with the defenses, with the striving. We can continue to operate on planet Earth and do everything we're doing, and yet it's with this remembrance of spirit. It's this remembrance of of who we truly are. So we'll take a moment right here just to pause again. And in this pause, imagine and sense and feel that you are an awakening being under the Bodhi tree. Sense the mind of an awakened being filling your mind, that lucidity, that wakefulness. Just relax and invite that to manifest. The radiance, openness, and stillness of the awakened mind. That clarity. Sense the awakened heart, that empty, radiant heart 
of a Buddha, your own loving presence, and let it penetrate and fill every cell, the spaces between the cells radiating out. When the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, he looked into the nature of his own mind and discovered that this radiance, this openness, this love was already here. From the Tibetan Book of the Dead, remember, remember the clear light, the pure, clear white light from which everything in the universe comes to which everything in the universe returns, the original nature of your own mind. Let go into the clear light, trust it, merge with it. It's your own true nature, it is home. No matter how far you wander, the light is only a split second, a half breath away. It is never too late to recognize the clear light. So just taking a few breaths and opening your eyes and looking through the eyes of an enlightened one. So I get to look at hundreds of enlightened ones and since thousands are listening enlightened and it's spreading because as soon as we begin to sense the possibility it can come alive. So we'll go back now to the Buddhist story. After enlightenment, here we are, we've been enlightened, So after enlightenment, (laughs) why not? Why not? Why not go for it? (laughs) So after the Buddha was enlightened, he started walking around, because that's what they did back then. They just started walking around, and from place to place. And for the first few days, people would approach him. He was kind of glowing. So they were saying, well, who are you? Are you a saint? Are you a healer? You know, are you a sage? Who are you? And he would say no to everything that they'd try to name him. Then finally he just said, I'm awake. Which is the meaning of the word Buddha. It's just that we're awake. We're not in trance. We're we're living from this wholeness. So the next 45 years, the last 45 years of his life, he went traveling, as I mentioned, walking through the cities and towns of the Ganges Plain. And he brought Dharma to whoever was interested. And... The Buddha it was a bodhisattva. In other words, a bodhisattva is an awakened being who recognizes his or her connection and belonging to all beings. So it's not like a sense of, I'll do this for me and that for you. It's really a sense of belonging and that each moment we are living in connection with each other and to serve the whole. And this is what he did. It's that understanding that when we're not caught in fear and this is true for each of us and you can think in your own life when you're not feeling afraid and when you're not feeling that your needs are unmet that something's missing there's a natural responsiveness and care about the world we come into a kind of innocence and I come back to a child the sense of a child where when we're not caught there's really a flow of aliveness and loving that's there. One of my favorite stories, kind of bodhisattva stories, was of a, a young girl Girl was uh, suffering from a disease, a very rare disease, and her only chance of recovery was would be through a transfusion of blood from her five-year-old brother. He had survived the same disease and he had the antibodies that were needed. And so the doctors explained the situation to her little brother and asked if he'd be willing to give blood to his sister. And uh, the woman that was watching this whole thing said he, she saw this young boy hesitate for a bit and he said, I have to think about it. And then after he thought about it for a bit, he, he said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it if it'll save her. So as the transfusion progressed, he lay in bed next to his sister um, and smiled as, as the color came back to her cheek. 
cheeks. But then his face grew pale and he, um, his voice, you know, kind of trembled and a smile faded and he looked up the doctor and then he asked the doctor this question. He said, will I start to die right away? So he had misunderstood. He thought he was giving his blood and that he was going to die. Now, how is this possible? You know, just to sense into that, that the only way it's possible is when somebody else is part of our heart and we're part of them. When we're not living from that, what I call the palace or the ego or spacesuit, the selfness is loosened. That's how it's possible. You know, the Dalai Lama said, my religion is kindness. This is not about being a Buddhist. This is about awakening to our beingness, which is innately kind when we're not lost in this trance of something's wrong with me or wrong with you. So the Buddha for these next decades, that that was his practice of compassion and teaching these practices of meditation. Through those years, Mara, remember Mara, he actually came back. And that's one of my favorite things about the mythology. I feel like it's really important because we can be very awake and still have these energies arise in us. And if we think like that means that something's terribly wrong, we're in trouble. Mara would come back and there'd be gatherings of, of people studying with the Buddha, practicing with the Buddha, and his disciple Ananda would see Mara and go, oh no, the evil one is here, you know. And Buddha would say, no, 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 In, let's invite him into tea. So he would have Mara come, very famous part of the mythology, and sit and have tea with him. He would befriend Mara. And then Mara would leave and, you know, the Buddha was just living from a very awake place. So, his death. He died in Kusanara from food poisoning and as the story goes, he was 80 years old and he was way, way, way in the outer realms, outer regions, a very uncivilized area for that time. And right up to the end, he had no interest in going back to one of the main uh, settlements. He just continued to, to, give, to share the Dharma with whoever wanted it. And one of the last interchanges that I want to share with you to do with the Buddha was that his disciple Ananda was totally bereft and weeping. And throughout the storyline with the Buddha and Ananda, Ananda's kind of a foil. He's the kind of human parts of us that get confused and are innocent, and the Buddha's always setting them straight. So once again, uh, this was the last teaching he gave Ananda, and I'll read it to you. This is from the Pali Canon, the uh, scriptures. The word of the teacher is now a thing of the past. You may be thinking, Ananda, that the word of the teacher is now a thing of the past, now we have no more teacher. But that's not how you should see it. Let the Dhamma and the practices I've taught you be your teacher when I'm gone. The truths must be living truths, known by direct realization. And the realization of what we are is to be lived for others. This is the holy life realizing our connectedness, living for the sake of all beings. He left his disciples with this message, be a light unto thyself. Don't rely on anything beyond your own attention, paying attention. He used the words, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself, don't believe anything I've said. There's no value to realization unless you've turned your attention to your own mind, recognized your inherent nature as awareness, as love, and live from that. His final resting spot was under his twin sal trees. And as the scriptures say, as a flame blown out by the wind goes to rest and cannot be defined, so the enlightened one, freed from selfishness, goes to rest and cannot be defined. Gone beyond all images, gone beyond the power of words. So we'll close. We're here again. The more moments that you sense this possibility, 
that we're here under the Bodhi tree and that any moment we're willing to pause and deepen attention is a moment that we can come home to our true nature. So we'll just take a a final pause together. Feeling the aliveness of your body. Including the sounds that are here. Feeling your heart, the tenderness of heart. And as all awakening beings find just to turn into your own mind, look into your own mind, sense what's aware, what's here. And just to sense that wakefulness that inner stillness, the silence that's listening, this luminous presence, no matter how far you wander, the light is only a split second, a half breath away. It's never too late to realize the clear light. So we close with the prayer, the simple prayer, may this heart and mind awaken to realize loving presence, to realize this loving presence as the very source of being. May our lives be lived from that loving presence. May all beings everywhere recognize this love, this presence, as source. May all beings touch a great and natural peace. May all beings everywhere awaken and be free. Namaste. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW's site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.